0: So last week we saw Jesus sketching a map of discipleship to His 12 followers. How they are to serve others, include those who are not deemed as worthy in society. How they are to mortify sin in their lives. And today we'll continue the teaching of Jesus by seeing Him coming to the crowd. So as you remember in the previous weeks, Jesus taught the disciples. He he moved away from the crowds and sought to teach His disciples alone teaching them the meaning of discipleship, how they are to follow Him, what it means to be His followers. And so in this first verse today, we see that Jesus again comes to the crowds, teaching the crowds, teaching the Pharisees. And the focus of Jesus' teaching today is to provide two corrections to popular misunderstandings or misconceptions that the Pharisees and the disciples had. So the first misconception was on the nature of marriage. What does marriage mean? And the second one was how we, as God's people, receive or enter into the kingdom of God. What Jesus seeks to show the crowds, the Pharisees and the disciples, is that man has twisted the understanding of both marriage and the kingdom. And I think it's important for us to see that even today, we as modern people twist the meaning of marriage and the kingdom of God. Firstly, we, we as modern people believe that marriage is you know, just something that you do. Maybe you perhaps not even do it anymore. Marriage rates in our modern society are at an all-time low. And for us who live here in Europe, we see a great example of this where people just cohabit. I mean, when my wife and I moved here, you could apply for spousal visa by showing that you've lived together for a year. So there's no value placed on marriage in our society anymore. And we, as much as the Jews did 2,000 years ago, need a reorientation or a re-understanding of what marriage means. And think about the kingdom of God. We hear various talks about God's kingdom, whether it's from atheists who don't believe in the kingdom of God, or whether it's people who believe that every single road, every belief leads to the kingdom of God. So many different religions have a perspective on what God's kingdom means and how we enter it. We as Christians are constantly being bombarded by different perspectives and different understandings of God's kingdom. And we, as much as the disciples, need a re understanding or a reorientation of what it means to enter the kingdom of God. So, the sermon title for today is God's Design for Marriage and the kingdom. And that's ultimately what we're going to want to look at today is how did God design marriage and how did God design the kingdom to look? So our first point and we'll jump straight into Jesus teaching is God's design for marriage. The first point is God's design for marriage. So it's quite interesting if you follow with me in verse 2. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they ask him, "Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife?" Now this is quite a strange question since any Jew of Jesus' day would have said yes. It's lawful. The Jews had no problem with men divorcing their wives. The, the, the debate actually among rabbis at that time wasn't whether it was right or wrong to divorce, but what were the right or wrong reasons to divorce your wife? So I'm going to read four verses out of Deuteronomy 24. And this was basically the text being used by the rabbis in this divorce passage, and it will also be the text used by them against Jesus. So Deuteronomy 24 says that when a man takes a wife and marries her, and she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. If that latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. So basically, what Deuteronomy 24 teaches and what the Jews believed is they wanted to discourage quick divorces. So they were like, don't be so quick to divorce, but if you want to divorce, find a reason, write a certificate and send the wife off. The only thing that protected the woman in this case was the fact that the man couldn't remarry her again. So the certificate of divorce guaranteed some form of dignity to the woman, that she just wasn't just a you know, commodity to be thrown around between different men. But the debate among Jews was what is this indecency that Deuteronomy 24 speaks about? Some Jews, more conservative Jews, said that it was indecency was the way your wife dressed or perhaps spoke to other men. It referred to ways in which she acted that could lead to sexual immorality. Remember, adultery wasn't even on the table. Adultery led to stoning. If you caught your wife in adultery as a Jew, you would just stone her. So you wouldn't have to go through the trouble of divorce. You'd just kill her. So the the conversation that the rabbis had was, what is a good enough reason to divorce your wife? And many commentators note that the Jews which came to Jesus and the Jews during this time, they had a very liberal view of marriage. They said that you could divorce your wife for any reason that you want to. right? So they even changed some of the passages in the Old Testament. There is an example of this in Malachi 2.16. God says, I hate divorce. So this is what Malachi 2.16 says. We see several translations of the Old Testament where the Jews changed that to read, If you hate her, divorce her. So many of the Jews during this time believed that if the man doesn't like his wife anymore, he can just send her away. And how much do we hear this today? Uh, You know, it just didn't work out. Oh, you know, the spark just wasn't there anymore. I think the situation that Jesus and his disciples found themselves in and the one we find ourselves in today is a very similar one. So in verse 2, we see that the Jews came to Jesus to test him. Now, there are two ways in which we can understand this test. The first one is to test his view of the Old Testament, as we discussed. And the second way is they're in Herod's jurisdiction. Remember, Herod was the one who killed John the Baptist for speaking to him about marrying a woman who divorced her husband, who he ultimately killed. So perhaps the Pharisees are coming to Jesus, wanting him to say something negative about divorce or something negative about Herod, so that they could kill him so either two options are on the table i don't think either one of the two carries more weight but i do think when we look at jesus response the key or the side i'm leaning to is the fact that they probably wanted to test what jesus believed about the torah or what the old testament taught jesus replies to them in verse three what did moses command And it's interesting to see that they don't tell Jesus what Moses commanded about divorce. They go to Deuteronomy 24 and they say, Moses permitted this concerning divorce. This wasn't Jesus' question. Jesus didn't ask him, what were the loopholes in in Moses' commands? What did Moses say? And what what are the permissions given? No, Jesus asked him, what did Moses command? And this shows us the heart of the Pharisees. The problem at the heart is they didn't come to the law with a disposition in their heart to keep the law, to find out what does the law command me to do and I want to do that. No, the Pharisees came to the law and they were like, well, this is what it says, but what am I allowed to do? Where are the gray areas? Where are the loopholes in this thing? What am I permitted to do? And Jesus informs the Pharisees that this permission, this allowance, is as a result of the hardness of their hearts. The the measures taken when marriage fails by the Jews can't provide us or the Jews in Jesus' time with a way of understanding what marriage means. And this is the key for us to understand the teaching of Jesus and God's design for marriage. We shouldn't come to to the text to see what do the texts say about divorce or where does the text permit certain things. No, we should come to the text as God's designed for marriage we should come to the text and say what does God say about this thing the opponents the Pharisees looked what does it permit and Jesus told them what the law commands we should therefore ultimately not look at the areas that come as a result of the hardness or the sinfulness of man's heart we should look at the original intent for marriage as God designed it to be so what is God's will for marriage What is this misconception that Jesus seeks to rectify? Well, this misconception is that marriage is just something on a piece of paper. And that marriage can be done away with a piece of paper. Marriage is marriage certificate. Just write it the certificate of divorce. Jesus tells them in verse 6 that God's will for marriage comes from the beginning of time. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus ultimately understands marriage as a union ordained by God between a man and a woman. In Jewish law, the power in marriage laid in the hands of man. A father gives her daughter over into the hands of a man. And we still find that in Christianity, that's still part of, we see the father bringing the woman to the, to the man. But in Judaism, everything depended on the man. If the man didn't like his wife, he could send her off and society wouldn't care. But Jesus tells the Jews, quoting Genesis 1, that God created both man and woman. They're, they're equal in their union with each other. Jesus declares not just man or maleness, but woman and femaleness in this union of marriage. In the Jewish understanding, they would have spoken about what is the man allowed to do? What can the man do? What does the man say? But Jesus is saying here that it's a union between a man and a woman, giving equal design to both men and women. And I think the greatest difference between Jesus and the rabbis here is that the Jews viewed man as the lord of marriage man was the one who brings people together man was the one who divorces but jesus is saying your god is the lord of marriage god is the one who brings people together and therefore what god has joined together let not man separate and i mean we often as modern christians fall into this trap quite often as as we see marriage happening in a court with a priest, with with papers, or perhaps in a church. And so it's no guessing that divorce is seen as something which man just does. Oh, you go to a court again, and there's a lawyer instead of a priest, and, and there's papers. We continue to make mankind lord of the marriage. Jesus here is saying that marriage is first and foremost something designed by God to happen before God, where God unites people together, not a priest, not a lawyer. And therefore, what God has joined together, let no man or no lawyer, no priest, no person separate. This is God's design for marriage. But we see in verse 10 that this discussion on marriage moves into a house and normally when Jesus teaches his disciples or the crowds, we see him teaching special things or more intense things in private, in a house. And this is where Jesus teaches one of his disciples probably one of the most controversial aspects about marriage. Well, this is, I would say, one of the most controversial or more difficult texts to preach. And I think many Christians seek to apologize for what Jesus says in this house to his followers he tells them anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her so not only is Jesus saying that the Pharisees misunderstood marriage and its design but he's saying that the Pharisees misunderstood remarriage and the nature of adultery now this would have been shocking to any Jew hearing this This was nowhere in the Old Testament. This is completely flipping Deuteronomy on its head. And this is ultimately the blueprint that we see, that according to what Jesus says, we should not take easy and look for easy reasons to divorce. But I think an important and pastoral note here and something which I think needs to be said is that we can't stop here. If I, if I just stopped here, I would leave many of you and many of our parents who have been divorced in, in great guilt saying that, you know, Mark 10, 1 to 12 says that there's absolutely no grounds for divorce. And if you remarry, you're living in adultery. And I don't think that is what the text is teaching. I think when we look at the Gospels, we need to read all of them together, especially when it's sensitive issues like marriage Remarriage, divorce. So when we come to Mark, I think we need to read Matthew 5, 32 and 9, 99 as well. In these texts, we see Jesus teaching the Pharisees and Jesus telling them that if anyone divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, he com- makes her commit adultery. And in verse 19, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another one, Commits adultery. So these passages have traditionally been known as the exception passages, where we see Jesus teaching that God's design for marriage is that we should not divorce. Yet he provides an exception to this, saying that adultery is a reason to divorce. Now you might ask, well, why does Mark not mention this? If if Jesus' teaching is this, why does Mark not mention this? And I think it's it's simple that. Mark is not concerned with reasons for divorce in a teaching on marriage. Mark is not you know, looking for the bad or the negative aspects of marriage in his teaching of marriage. He's showing us God's holy design for marriage. And God's holy design for marriage is that we should never divorce. Yet, as we see in Deuteronomy 24, because of the hardness of man, Moses had to permit divorce. And I think we can say in a sense... Jesus, because of our sinfulness and our hardness of heart, had to include this exception that adultery is an exception to this rule. When we look at marriage, I don't think we should look at marriage on you know, the various possible ways in which marriage could be broken up. We should look at marriage in the way God designed and intended marriage to look like. So this is God's design for marriage, that divorce should never happen. Since what God has brought together, let no man separate. But due to human sinfulness and our hardness of heart, Jesus allows for this exception. That if adultery happens within the marriage, then divorce is permissible. Now, I know many of us have parents who are divorced. Many of us in this church have been divorced and remarried. So I don't want Jesus' teaching to, to fill us with guilt and shame this morning. Since we know in Scripture that all sins, in Mark 3, for example, it says all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven. This is after all the the teaching of Scripture that every sin we commit, everything we do wrong will be forgiven. I mean, there's no instance in the Bible where a person seeks God's forgiveness and God's like, no, I'm not going to forgive you. So if you've been divorced, remarried, if your parents have, don't go running to them and being like, you're living in sin because that's not what the text is teaching. But I do believe that in a society where casual divorce is so easy or in a society where marriage is seen on such low grounds that people don't even get married, we as Christians have a unique call to show this world and disciple this world on the true meaning and intent of marriage. Yes, marriage is difficult. There is a reason why people speak about a honeymoon period coming to an end. You know, this is the time where the happiness and the endorphins and the emotions ends and you come to the reality of the sinfulness of your spouse, the the sinfulness of, you know, yourself. You're confronted with a lot of realities in marriage. But in marriage, as in all other areas where Jesus calls us to, we should seek to serve our spouses as we're called to serve and love our neighbors Let us serve those and commit ourselves to each other. Will we be like the Pharisees who seek relief in what is permitted in marriage? Like how far can I push this not to serve my wife? Or will we look at what does God command me to do in marriage? How can I serve my husband? How can I lay my life down for my wife? We should not seek for loopholes in God's commandments. As His disciples, we should follow Him wholeheartedly. By serving those closest to us. This marriage union where two become one flesh. We should honor and nurture this gift which God has given us. Many, many preachers say that this is the closest thing that we as, as humans can see to our union that we will have with Christ one day in heaven. And so let us cherish that. So after Jesus corrected a misconception on marriage, He shows the crowds that the kingdom, like marriage, is not something that we as humans come to define or understand, but that the kingdom of God and how we enter the kingdom of God is also by God's design. And this is the second point for our sermon today, God's design of the kingdom. So follow with me in verse 13. So in verse 13, we see that the disciples rebuking people that bring young children to him. Now this is worrying and it shows us that the disciples have some short, you know, sort of shorter memory loss as literally in our teaching last week we see Jesus telling them that they should receive the outcasts of society, pointing to children specifically. And here we see the disciples now again chasing the children away, showing that they still have this sort of elitist mindset. They do exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught them to do. This again shows us that their attitude is in line with what society does and what society wants instead of the kingdom. Which we said last week is an upside down kingdom. Something that doesn't make sense. But this time Jesus is much less gentle with the disciples. It's one of the few verses where you get a sense Jesus actually being being angry or being annoyed with the disciples. So in verse 14, it says that Jesus was indignant. So this means that Jesus was angry or severely displeased with what he saw. His displeasure here reveals his compassion with the helpless, the vulnerable, the children. We see here Jesus' compassion with them. As they're being chased away, he's actually annoyed at the ones chasing them away. Let the little children come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Rather than chasing the children away, Jesus tells his disciples that these children are the heirs of the kingdom of God. Now the important thrust of this teaching is what Jesus tells them next. Follow with me in your Bible. So Jesus tells them, I tell you the truth. Anyone who, does, who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. So many times we look at this passage and we're like, Okay, so this means we as Christians, we should look at the virtues that children have and then do those things and, and we enter the kingdom. So, you know, innocence or humility or blind trust, we should be like that. But I think any adult sitting here today will tell you that children can also be disobedient and stubborn and disrespectful. So I don't think Jesus is telling us to look at children and look at the virtues and qualities they have and emulate that. And that's how we're you know, entering the kingdom of God. I think this, it's much simpler than that. The, the Greek year for little children means very young or infants. Luke actually in his gospel says that these were babies. I think here Jesus is teaching us not the virtues of these children, but the children themselves. It's not so much about what they have as it is about what they lack. What did these children lack? Well, they were small. They were powerless. They were overlooked in society. They were the least in society. To receive the kingdom of God as a child is therefore to receive it as one with no credits, no claim to the kingdom, no clout. A little child has absolutely nothing to contribute, nothing to bring. And whatever a child receives as a gift they receive it. Just think about this. When you give a child a gift, more often than not, they will not even say thanks. Parents would have to remind them to say thanks. They will receive the gift and be thankful. Yet what do we as adults do? Oh, you shouldn't have. I'll, I'll pay you back. I'll whip I'll you the money for this gift. Or, or we say, oh, I forgot to buy you something for your birthday. And we make a note. Next birthday, we have to repay them for this gift. We always want to earn the free gifts we receive. When we receive something freely, we want to do stuff to justify the fact that we have received this. And we do this with the grace that we see from God as well. We receive grace by faith and then work, work, work. Trying to justify the grace which God has given us. There's this really nice analogy which I like where it speaks about the, the gospel and preaching the gospel. I actually think R.C. Sproul, but I can't remember who said this, is they said that proclaiming the gospel is like two beggars. The one shows the other beggar where to find bread. And I really like that analogy because it shows us that the gospel, we're like beggars with empty hands receiving from God. And that when we preach the gospel to our neighbors, to our friends, we tell them wh- where to receive bread, where they go with their empty hands to receive from God. And this teaching is so foundational to how we understand the kingdom of God. Many people think that they need to get their lives in order. They need to stop sinning. They need to stop being something. They need to stop doing stuff in order to come to God, in order to enter the kingdom. But what Jesus is teaching us here is that we need to receive the kingdom like little children, like those with absolutely nothing to add. Perhaps you're sitting here today wondering if you're good enough for Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps you're feeling like you've sinned too much in the past. That your resume before God isn't good. You have way too many sins and not enough good deeds. Become like a child. Realize that you have nothing to bring to God but open hands to receive His grace. And this is a great reminder for us as, as His disciples today as well. How often do we look at people with nothing to bring? Someone who doesn't have their life in order. Perhaps someone who is messy, someone who is still stuck in sin. And we as a church judge whether their conversion was real or whether they're worthy of coming to Jesus. I remember this being the case a few years ago when Kanye West had his big conversion experience. And immediately, as a Christian society, people were doubtful of whether anything actually happened. He swears, he drinks a lot, he does drugs, he acts like a child. And many Christians, before even assessing the fruit of his conversion, came to the conclusion that it couldn't be real. That it could not be possible for a person like this to be a Christian. Now whether his conversion was real or not, I don't know. And God is the only one who can judge. But let's think about Paul for a moment. Paul killed the people of God. Paul killed Christians... And then sent him to another Christian when he was struck with blindness. The guy who just killed your brothers comes to you and tells you that he's all of a sudden a Christian. This must have been something really difficult for the Christians to come to grips with. Yet we give even less grace to people as Christians. If God can save someone like Paul who killed his people, how much more can he save someone like you? or me let us not be like the disciples telling those who come to jesus seeking to taste of the bread of life that they can't come until they have something to bring to him let us not chase those with nothing away saying that you know jesus wants only those who can bring something to him he wants those who have nothing he wants those who cling to him by faith It's like the old hymn goes, nothing in my hands I bring, but only to the cross I cling. That's the disposition of the heart that Jesus is looking for. He wants children, he wants believers who come to him with nothing, yet by faith clinging to the cross. So as I come to a close today, I want us all to receive this teaching from Jesus. I want us all to receive a sort of new set of eyes or a new set of glasses to see How we are to understand marriage and the kingdom. Our society has done a really great job at distorting this, whether it is the series we watch, the conversations we're part of in our workplace. Our understanding of marriage and the kingdom has become distorted as Christians. We need to remind ourselves that God is ultimately the one who designed marriage, God is ultimately the one who designed his kingdom. How we enter it is given to us in His Word. How we are to view marriage is given to us in His Word. We should therefore heed the words of Jesus. We should be like David in Psalm 78, which we read this morning, where he says, Give ear, my people, to this teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. That they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. They should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. Let us not be like the Israelites or the Pharisees, where we hear the sayings of Jesus. We see his commandments, yet we look at what's permissible or we look for the loopholes. Let us teach our children and society that our hope is set upon God. And we don't do this by our words. We do this by the way in which we keep God's commandments. So I want us all to be reminded this week that as we meditate on God's design for marriage and how God commands we enter into the kingdom, the way in which we keep God's commands, the way in which we love in keeping God's commands, These are the ways in which we can show our children and the world that our hope is set upon God. Let's pray.